listening to the Grateful Historians Podcast, powered by McGinnis Dirt Services. I'm Lavelle, along with Chance, and we are educators with a passion for rural, local, and regional Southern history. We call ourselves the Grateful Historians because we are truly grateful and blessed. And Chance and I are sitting today here at the Matheston City Hall, ready to continue, I think, an interesting story that we had about the robbery of the train at Duck Hill, Mississippi. This is an interesting story. It's maybe, I hope not too convoluted, but it takes a lot of different paths, and hopefully we were able to to keep the story straight the first time we talked about it. Let me give just a brief recap of the previous story before we get into the details of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, As we mentioned the last time we were together, The Illinois Central train was robbed on the day of December the 15th, 1888, about 10.15 p.m., a mile north of Duck Hill, Mississippi. Uh, There were about 17 shots fired in total. Two men came up robbing the train, the express office. Uh, Unfortunately, a passenger by the name of Chess Hughes, who attempted to aid in helping uh, fight off these criminals, was killed. He died about an hour later at Grenada. Uh, There was a large reward posted. The robbers fled into a nearby swamp. And suspicion soon turned to a man by the name of Eugene Bunch. Uh, He had sometimes, and I did not mention this in the last podcast, but he had sometimes used the alias of Captain J.F. Girard. He was a real-life veteran of the 3rd Louisiana Cavalry. We mentioned last time that he was a school teacher before turning to a life of crime, and he was a notorious train robber throughout Texas, Louisiana, and South Mississippi. After a long search, the detectives were able to place a plant, a spy, in his gang, but this spy was discovered and shot in execution style. And when they finally caught up to Eugene Bunch's gang, Eugene Bunch was killed. His associate with him was able to testify and give some details that told us he was not the person responsible for the Duck Hill robbery. So the detectives had to move on from there. Well, after this discovery of and, and this realization that he is not, in fact, responsible for the Duck Hill robbery, does this put the detectives back to square one, or, or did they have other potential leads in this case? Well, piecing this story together from old records, it appears that for a brief period of time, they were indeed back to square one. Uh, but before too much time elapsed, their suspicion fell on a man by the name of Reuben Houston Burrow, often called Rube Burrow, or sometimes his name was in the newspaper as Burrows, B-U-R-R-O-W-S. But more often than not, we see his name as Rube Burrow. And I would like to give just a little information about him. Uh, He has an interesting background, too. I'm really not sure that anybody who goes into this type of life of crime probably has something in their background. We generally can trace it back to, you know, a poor upbringing or, you know, some type of event that turns them in that direction. 
Rube Burrow was born December the 11th, 1856, near Sullivan, Alabama. And Chance, he was one of about 10 children. There were at least 10 children, and they were from a very poor family. Interestingly enough, his mother was known locally throughout the region, and she was called Dame Burrow. She was called a faith healer, or some people in the area actually called her a witch. And people would bring people to Dame Burrow to incant over them and to hopefully cure them of some type of sickness and and this type of thing. So this is his background. As a young boy, he and one of his siblings, a brother by the name of Jim Burrow, read in the newspapers about the Jesse James gang. And young Rube decided one day that he would take a sack, make himself a homemade mask out of it, and stand by the road and wait till somebody comes by and commit a highway robbery. Well, guess who comes by but their neighbor. His neighbor rides by, young Rube, who I think is about 11 years old at the time, steps out with a gun from behind some bushes. Now, the neighbor recognized who he was, but the neighbor's also facing a barrel of a gun, so he gave him the money that he had. But the neighbor also went home, told his father what had happened, His father took Rube back behind the barn. He whipped him, and he made him go return the money. So at 11 years old and being an advocate of the Jesse James gang and already having committed his first crime, it didn't end quite so well. Well, years pass by, and Rube Burrow moves to Texas to work on an uncle's family farm. And while he is in Texas, he marries. And seemingly working hard and is very happy for a brief period of time, but unfortunately his young wife passes away. And Rube Burrow turned to drinking. And he began moving about. He would not stay in one place long. He seemed to have wanderlust and you know, just, just couldn't find his, his station in life maybe. But then he meets a woman and remarries, but because of his drinking and because of his inability to stay in one place at a time, this becomes a very unhappy union, and he considers moving back to Alabama. But before leaving Texas and not having a steady job and because of his, his other problems, he and his brother Jim and some friends tried their hand at train robbing marginally successful. They did get away with a little bit of money, but eventually Jim Burrow is going to be captured on one of these excursions out West and he dies in prison after a brief illness. So now it's not Rube and Jim Burrow. It's just Rube Burrow. And here's what he found out when his brother died. Rube Burrow realized pretty quickly that it was best to work in a small group. They had tried getting a gang together, but it it just didn't work as well because he knew if he could get one associate with him who thought like he did, acted like he did, knew his movements, knew what they were going to do, could read each other's minds basically, that that would work better. And he befriended a man by the name of, we, we think this was his name, it may have been an alias, 
Joe Jackson. And Rube Burrow and Joe Jackson actually began a reign of terror in Texas, Louisiana. Sounds a whole lot like Eugene Bunch, right? You can see why Eugene Bunch was a suspect. These two men began robbing trains in the Southwest. Uh, Burrow, Rube Burrow, they said was about 34 years old at this time. And here's a description of him. Six foot one, 175 pounds, broad, square shouldered, long, muscular arms, very fast, claims to have never been beaten in a foot race or thrown in a wrestling match. Uh, it was said that he had high cheekbones, a long and drooping mustache. And Chance, doesn't this just sound like a Western? High cheekbones, long and drooping mustache. Excellent marksman with both a Colt handgun, but said to be absolutely unparalleled with a Winchester. Uh, it was said that when he fired his Winchester, he would get down on one knee, lean against an elbow, place it on his leg, and fire from that position, and that when he did so, he was unparalleled with that ability. So, these two men, Rube Burrow and Joe Jackson, this becomes their method of the train robberies. So, this becomes now the focus of the entire investigation. It wasn't Eugene Bunch. Eugene Bunch was not there. There's a total effort now to arrest Rube Burrow and Joe Jackson, and see if they are the ones who did the Duck Hill, Mississippi robbery and murder. Okay, so did Rube Burrow spend any time in jail, or did he avoid capture? Well, he had a long career, and so many of the things that events surrounding the things that he did, rob various robberies. One night before Jim Burrow died, his brother they would constantly go back between Texas and Alabama. You never could catch them in one place. They would hop on a train, leave, stay gone for a while, stay gone until the heat was off, and then come back. But one night before Jim Burrow was placed in jail and died, uh, Rube and Jim were in Montgomery, Alabama, and police had gotten word that he was there. And on another dark and stormy night chance, as the, as the newspaper said once again, Six policemen walked up wearing rubber raincoats to cover their insignia of their badges and basically were going to surround them on the street. And Rube saw them and immediately recognized who they were. He spoke up, Rube did, and said, We are from out of town and we would like to find a cheap boarding house in this town. And one of the deputies drew a gun and pointed it in his direction, grabbed him, and said, All right, I'll show you one. It's called the jail. And walked him to the jailhouse. That's a pretty dramatic answer, isn't it? Uh, but on the way, these six deputies and these two criminals, on the way to the jailhouse, Rube gave a signal, and they made a break for it. Jim Burrow was slightly wounded. Rube outran the policeman because we just said a few minutes ago that he was unequaled in, in a foot race. A man in a printing shop who owned a nearby printing shop, his name was Neil Bray, saw the ruckus going on outside, heard the shouts, and as Rube Burrow ran by his printing shop, he tried to tackle him as he ran out. 
Rube Burrow took the gun out of his pocket, swung it at him and hit him, then turned and fired at him, that concealed handgun that he was carrying, which the police did not know about, and he made off. He ran to a house on the outskirts of town. The police approached that house, but they knew that he had a gun because he had shot this printer and killed him, by the way. The police approach it, but they're very reluctant to go inside. And as they approach, the back of the house is near a woods, and he took off out the back door. This is the edge of Montgomery, Alabama. And just as he entered the undergrowth behind the back of that house as he is running, a deputy was able to get close enough to him with a shotgun to shoot him in the neck with birdshot. So he was peppered with birdshot in the neck, but it was so far enough away that it did go underneath the skin, but it didn't do lasting damage. And he was able to run away. So, they, yes, he would have gone to jail that time, but makes his break just outside Montgomery, Alabama. Now, is there any evidence that points to him being excessively violent in any of his robberies? Well, you know, we have to think back a little bit um, to the time period. And, and Chance, you teach early U.S. history, and I teach modern U.S. history. But I think back to, say, the 1930s, the middle of the Great Depression. And we think about some of these people like Bonnie and Clyde. Um, you know, there was an element of the population who found those crimes to be somewhat romantic, that they were robbing from the rich, these bankers and these people who had money. And, you know, I'm broke in the middle of the depression, so therefore it doesn't affect me. And word had kind of spread that Rube Burrow would not go into a train and take a, a, a woman's purse away from her. Okay. He would rob the express office. He would go take the money out of the express office. What people failed to understand is that that express office carried money that was going to be wages for workers, that kind of thing. So this wasn't just a Robin Hood style of thing. But, yes, there was some romantic element to it. Uh, and, and a lot of people, I think, particularly in Alabama, it's not that they were in favor of him, but they were wondering how many times is he going to get away. So he kind of takes on this mythos type of you know thing. Unfortunately, something is going to happen which turns people's attention away from that. He is going to make a move that does turn people against him. And it happened, Chance, in Lamar County, Alabama. In Lamar County, Alabama was a little bitty town by the name of Jewel, which had a small country post office. Well, Rube Burrow had sent, oh, this is near his home, where, he, where his family is from. And Rube Burrow had sent away for a package. And he had sent it to come to this local post office under an alias. And the name he had sent it to come to was W.W. Kane, C-A-I-N. He sends his brother-in-law to pick up the package. And the brother-in-law goes into the post office. He knows the package is there. And the postmaster refused to give it to him. He said, I know who you are, and you're not W.W. Kane. Well, this is, again, a, a country store slash post office, and privacy is not the best thing in the world in these places. Some old country farmer comes into the post office, and he sees the package and picks it up and takes a look at it, and when he does, the package comes open. 
Well, guess what was inside the package? A fake beard, which apparently he was going to use on one of the robberies. Well, this is what Rube's brother-in-law had asked for was to pick up the package. Well, it became kind of a local joke. They were, they said, you know, Rube Burrow's brother-in-law was in here under, you know, trying to pick up a package, which we know was for him, even though he wasn't in here and it was a fake beard. Well, people thought that was funny and they kind of started making fun of Rube Burrow, even though he's done all these, you know, things. Well, a few days later, a tall man enters the post office and says, you have a package for W.W. Kane. I want it. And as the postmaster is standing there, the man says, I'll teach you to show my property around, and drew out a revolver and shot the postmaster. And the postmaster said very simply, Rube, you have killed me, and slumped over the counter. Now, there were two witnesses to this story, and he died. And he was a very popular person in the community. Now, some of these people who had saw Rube Burrow as this man who robs trains hundreds of miles from people who we don't know and takes money from people who we don't know has now killed a popular local man. And so now local sentiment has turned against him. Apparently also, while all of this is going on, he makes the acquaintance chance of a young girl named Molly Pennington, and she probably deserves a podcast. We've said this three times already in the last two podcasts. We've got other material. We should do one on her. But this young girl, who was about 13 years old, develops a case of hydrophobia. We would call it today rabies, or at least the symptoms. But she tells the doctor, I am going to die. In one hour, I will come back alive. This much of the story we know to be true because at least four separate people, three of whom were medical people, were in the room and heard this. She lives in the same county that all this story that we're talking about takes place. She's 13 years old, never been to school a day in her life. And she tells the doctors, I am going to die, and in one hour, I will come back to life. According to the doctors, they couldn't find any evidence of a pulse. Well, she began some minutes later, not an hour, but sometime later, a family member came into the room. 45 minutes later, it was possible that much time had elapsed and splashed water in her face. And the doctor said, it's no good. She's gone. And about that time she started mumbling. And about 30 minutes later, after that was done, she asked the doctor, could she stand up? And the doctor said, you're in no condition to stand up. And she said, yes, I am. And here were her words. I have been to heaven and I've seen the new Jerusalem. And God has sent me back to heal people. And she asked for another doctor who had been there earlier. And they said, he's not here. And she said, yes, he is. He's on his way. And about 15 minutes later, he showed up. Her family apparently used all of these incidents to turn her into this way to make money. Um, there were a lot of country people, and, and, and by the way, I, I don't believe that she died for an hour and then came back and was able to heal people. Okay? I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that in that era, there were people who would, because of, you and I mentioned this before our last podcast, 
uh, people died in an early age and they wanted to hear things like this and they play this played off people's fears uh, it was said that she spoke at a local worship service uh, she was not a member of any church by the way they said that she spoke at a local worship service three weeks later and over 1,000 people showed up at the worship service to hear her speak. Now, then what we start seeing are things like, you know, if you'll leave a donation or whatever, you know. And so this becomes kind of like a thing that might possibly export it for money. But Rube Burrow apparently believed in her. And he makes this connection to this young girl whose name was Molly Pennington, who lived in that county. And they become they they are friends during that time period. It's crazy that we started in Duck Hill, and and we've got um, where where all the different tracks the story is going. But it's it's fascinating. So now explain the story to the audience of Burrow and the Battle of Sand Mountain. You briefly gave me a little information earlier. I think it's fascinating um, the amount of effort that's going to be involved with this, but kind of give the audience some information about the Battle of Sand Mountain. I will be happy to do so, and I'd also like to mention our sponsors, McGinnis Dirt Services. You can contact Austin McGinnis at 662-552-7750 for all of your land improvement needs. If you need a pond built, levee cleared off, bush hogging, stumps dug, access road or a lane, or even a house pad, for any and all of your land improvement needs, you would do well to contact Austin McGinnis. McGinnis Dirt Services. The number there is 662-552-7750. We'd also like to mention Michael Cobb of Farm Bureau Insurance. See Michael for all of your insurance needs. He can help you with those from coverage for your home and autos to life insurance plans, all tailored to meet your individual needs. Farm Bureau is a Mississippi company and Michael is a local agent committed to taking care of you. So go with the home team. Call Michael Cobb at Farm Bureau Insurance. His number, 662-258-7802. And Chance, one quick shout-out today as we are doing this. Two friends of mine who are uh, going to be leaving Mississippi very soon, uh, going out on the mission field, and that is Jack and Ellie Wilson, good friends of mine, and we wish them the best in their future endeavors. Uh, but they listen to our podcast, and we are grateful to them. So the question was, explain the story about Rue Burrow and the Battle of Sand Mountain. Because this story has gotten bigger. As you said, we started in Duck Hill, and now we've gone to South Mississippi, Honey Island, and now we're in Alabama. Detectives figured out that this man Jackson and this man Rue Burrow were allegedly near a place called South, or excuse me, Sand Mountain. Uh, Sand Mountain, as we know about North Alabama, it's in the extreme southern part of the Appalachians. And is it a mountain? Well, no, if you lived in Virginia, you wouldn't call it one, but it is certainly a high hill. They went to a rural cabin, and they called out for Burrow, these detectives, Burrow opened the door, then he closed the door, then he had a female hostage standing with him at the doorway. He began backing off out of this cabin, and 
had the woman held at gunpoint and they're backing up. And as soon as he gets in a tree line where they really can't fire and with the fear of hitting this woman, he then releases the woman. And so the sheriff, rather than chase him because he doesn't have a lot of people with him and they know how good of a shot that Rube Burrow is with that Winchester and because he's gotten in that secluded area, he goes back to town and he gathers a posse of 50 men and comes back. So it's Rube Burrow and Joe Jackson against at least 50 armed deputies. Well, Burrow and Jackson didn't even make an attempt to escape. They just went off near the edge of this place called Sand Mountain, this real high hill out there in the middle of nowhere, and they are resting at the foot of Sand Mountain next to a clump of trees, but there's also some large boulders to hide behind, and that's where they are. Well, the posse comes up, and they don't want to go very far from this cabin where they had been because, as I said, they, they didn't make any attempt to escape. As they moved in, Burrow jumped up and fired with his Winchester, and the very first shot went right through the forehead of a posse member named Harry Oberton, local farmer, and he dropped dead instantly. Obviously, this posse is going to return fire, and with his first shot, Jackson, the other criminal in this case, took off a piece of the ear of another deputy. So with two shots fired, one of them's been shot through the head and the other one's been shot part of his ear off. Another posse member was then shot directly through the heart and then two more posse members were killed. So this is not going well for this group of men who have surrounded these guys. So at this time, the posse retreated and Burrow and Jackson decide to climb up on top of Sand Mountain and wait it out up there. So Sheriff Morris, who has gone to town and brought these 50 men and now has these dead men alongside him, decides to leave just a few lookouts stationed kind of around this high hill to make sure he doesn't leave off, and they go away to care for their wounded and dead. He goes back to town. He makes a few inquiries. He sends off uh, a couple of wires to various other towns nearby, and they return that Sunday morning, Chance, with 150 more deputies. Over 150 deputies are looking for two men in Sand Mountain, Alabama. They bring more Winchester rifles, and they bring a couple of bloodhounds with them, and those bloodhounds are supposed to track. Well, as they come walking up, and remember, we said Burrow was an excellent shot, from a long, long distance away, he hits one of the dogs, and the dog falls over dead. They had two. And Burrow yells out, and it's far enough away they can just barely make out what he's saying, but he, say, he said, you fellows go and learn how to shoot and then come back. Now, as it so happened, there is another cabin up on top of this mountain. They've already gone to one and made away with a woman who were able to make their escape because they held her hostage. But now they've gone up on top of this place called Sand Mountain, and they've gone to another location. And Burrow and Jackson go there and were able to get food from a poor family. So they raided the place of any food on the place and take off. Well, they left. They didn't take hostages this time. They just left the cabin, but now they've got food and water. The next morning, as all of these men, because remember, there, there are 
at least 150 deputies. There are several wagons. You've got Pinkerton detectives. You've got express office agent detectives. You've got local deputies all mingling at the base of this hill trying to bring these two men out. Well, while they're down there the next morning, an old man rides up on a mule, and he told the posse, I just saw two men who looked like Burrow and Jackson leaving for the road that goes to a little town called Walnut Hills nearby. Walnut Hills is several miles away. Now, this party of deputies has an issue now because if they go, they may be getting false information. But if they don't go, they may get clean away because if they get to Walnut Hills, this town, they can get to a train and they'll be on the train and then they'll be gone for good. And then they'll be repeat this process over again when we can find them again. So the party started arguing back and forth. Sheriff wanted to do one thing. Pinkerton agents want to do another. Ultimately, this caravan. Now think about this for a second. Think about seeing this in rural Alabama, in the middle of nowhere. It was said that this caravan of people in this posse consisted of 167 horses and mules five Pinkerton agent wagons, 25 more of volunteers and railroad agents all make their way around this mountain in the direction of Walnut Hills, trying to pick up the trail of these two guys who supposedly left. The dogs couldn't find any trail, no dog that's left. He can't, he can't pick up a scent. And there were a couple of men, because they had this old man who was on the mule, they made him come with them. Well, there are a couple of men in this posse who produce a rope, and they tell the sheriff, look, this guy's giving us bad information. Let's hang him because he is obviously a friend of these two people, and he's put us on the wrong scent so he can get away. And Rube has gotten away again because of this guy. Well, the old man starts crying and saying, no, I saw somebody. I didn't give you bad information. And the sheriff says to them, and they had gotten the rope out. They were headed to a tree and put the rope on the tree, and he says, no, you're not going to do that. We don't know that to be true. For all we know, his story could be true. And he stops it. So the old man does not hang. But Rube Burrow and Jackson are gone. They go back to Sand Mountain. They look around, and they're not there. So they have given them the slip one more time. Okay, so after all of this, do these two men finally end up being captured or, or do they ultimately make their escape? Because honestly, at this point, it sounds like um, th- they're pretty well off at, at giving the authorities the slip with this huge posse uh, literally having them cornered, it seems like, at, at this point, and, and still managing to lose, lose them. Uh, do they ever get captured? Well, before I answer that question, I want to ask you one. If you were watching this on television – or you were reading this in a novel and someone had made up this story, would you have turned it off and said this is implausible? I would, especially if it was in a book, I would have already rolled my eyes multiple times at, at these scenes playing out. There's no way that these two guys are going to be able to, to hold off this amount, you know, this amount of men who are supposedly trained very well to, to handle situations like this. Uh, so I... It does not seem plausible at all, and I feel like at some point they would be captured, but 
Um, again, this seemed like that the best opportunity for that to have happened. So since it didn't, I, I would make my guess that they, they probably evaded capture. Cliches such as a dark and stormy night sometimes are overused. And some and this one is overused sometimes, but it doesn't make any less true. Uh, truth is sometimes stranger than fiction, right? That sometimes these stories that from the past and – you know, I have gathered this from a variety of different newspapers and from articles and from the Alabama Historical Society. So, you know, it sounds like somebody sat down and made this up, but they didn't. And that's what's so amazing about it. Now, you ask the question, did they finally wind up getting caught? Well, because they know, look, you, you can't outrun 180 men forever. So after this incident, they decided to split up for a while. And that was probably a smart move. I mean, you know, we're not, we better go separate ways and you know, maybe change identity or something like that. And now this becomes a local story to some degree. Because there's this new railroad that opens up in 1899 that goes through Columbus, Mississippi. And it goes through these new little towns of Maybone and Matheston and Newport and these places. On that train called the Georgia Pacific, this man named Jackson, who went also by an alias Brock, was captured on the train. Um, It just so happened that a Pinkerton detective was on that train, recognized him, had probably been, I don't know this for certain, but had probably been in that group who were on Sand Mountain or one of these others. It makes sense. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, the odds are good, Chance says, because you know, who, who wasn't there? Um, but anyway, he spots him, produces a gun, and holds him at gunpoint. Now, they take him to a Memphis prison to hopefully avoid the death penalty. Because remember, this is not just robbery. Now you have murder of Chess Hughes and Duck Hill and, you know, Rube Burroughs killed other people. To hopefully avoid the death penalty, he confessed to a number of crimes, including, guess what, the Duck Hill robbery. So what you and I have spent almost two hours talking about, we finally have a conclusive answer. Yes, Jackson and Rube Burrow were the two men who held up the train in Duck Hill, Mississippi. Now, that's Jackson. But the question is, what about Rube Burrow? Rube Burrow was recognized outside the town of Demopolis, Alabama, by a citizen who invited him inside to eat at his house, um, was able to get the drop on him with a gun and held him until he called out in Demopolis. And it so happened that detectives had been in the Demopolis area looking for Rube Burrow, and one of them is with the deputies there in town, and they arrive at this person's home, and there he is. Now, here's what I find odd, Chance. We have had Pinkerton detectives who happen to be the brightest of the bright and supposedly the FBI of the day, and we've had 180 men and all these people after him. Who catches him? Some poor old guy who invites him in to eat and gets to drop on him while they're having supper. That's the way this ends to some degree. Well, it's not over yet, but this that's the way, you know, that's how he finally gets caught. And that had to, you know, that had to burn at these detectives just a little bit. You know, some local guy catches him. 
So, Rube Burrow was taken to the Linden, Alabama jail with his hands bound behind him. And in an episode that is not one of law enforcement's great events, he asked the police to untie his hands so he could feed himself. And they did. And guess what? He had a derringer on him that they did not account for. And he is a fast runner, so he points the Derringer at these men and he heads out the front door, getting away from the men inside. Well, it just so happens, hearing the yelling and the shouts, a local merchant merchant named Jefferson Davis Carter was inside his office doing some late work when he heard the yelling and the shouting and he ran to the street. And Burrow is running down the street, and Carter yells for him to stop, and they both begin firing at each other. Jefferson Davis Carter was struck once, but as he was falling to the ground, he shot, and he shot Burrow in the chest. And that shot ended his life, went through his heart, and Burrow died instantly. Let me take this one step further. Burrow was not only caught by a local citizen who turned him over to the police, the police allowed him to get away, and then a merchant, a man who had nothing to do with this, shoots him through the heart on the streets of Linden, Alabama. And thus ends the career of train robber Rube Burrow. After all of these crazy (laughs) events. Um, You know, I, I don't know what else to say other than that wraps up a tremendous story except to say one thing we have not mentioned what happened to jackson this cohort of his Uh, were they able to try him or, or what what happens with him they took jackson who was convicted to a life sentence i'm kind of surprised back in that era that they didn't go for more uh, with conditions being as they were but he got a life sentence He was taken to Jackson, Tennessee. The Jackson, Tennessee prison has this sort of open courtyard style in the center, and it has a row of uh, floors of cells on top of one another with an open center. And when Jackson found out that he had been convicted to a life sentence, he managed to push away from a guard, jump over the railing of the top floor, and jumped down to his death. So he died on the floor of the Jackson, Tennessee prison. So we had Rube Burrow killed in the streets of Linden, Alabama, and Jackson killed by leaping to his death from the prison courtyard. What an interesting story that is. Um, All tied around Duck Hill, Mississippi. Such an interesting, convoluted tale that involves multiple states. Chance it begs for a movie. Or, a, or at least a great book, you know. I mean, I, I'm sure a couple of smaller ones have been written. I will say this about Rube Burrow. I will post it to uh, the Grateful Historian's Facebook account. There is a photo of him taken in his coffin. Uh, they put his uh, revolver and his Winchester beside him in the coffin with him. The handlebar mustache, the whole thing. I mean, he very well could be in... Uh, Deadwood or, or uh, you know, Dodge City or one of these places out west. I mean, it's just such – that's the kind of story that there is. So a, a bit of a western, but a Mississippi and Alabama western. Such, a, such an interesting story. 
that's going to wrap us up, I think. I would like to say we, all, we are the grateful historians. We would like to say once again just how grateful we are to the people who listen to this podcast. Uh, we have some listeners in the state of Georgia. I noticed on our demographics looking the other day that there are you know, several people in Georgia listening to our podcast and that they're listening to you know, rural history from Mississippi and some you know, regional history sprinkled in. I just think that's great. and we, we are so appreciative to the people who do listen to this podcast. Uh, we're going to wrap it up. We will join you again next time. Thank you for joining us.